Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you this morning. A little fall weather's arrived. That's all right with me. Kind of my favorite time of the year. Huh? You remember a few weeks ago, we started in the book of James, and we learned some things about trials. Uh, as James said, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, since you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As followers of Jesus, that's his plan for us, that we would grow into maturity, that the image in which we were created would be restored. We would consistently reflect Jesus in our uniqueness as he's designed us to reflect it. From there, we looked uh, to our Old Testament. We found Joshua, or sorry, uh, Joseph, and we found from Joseph that... um, In the midst of those trials, we can always assume his presence, that he will be with us. There will be times when circumstances will try to suggest to us that he's forgotten, he's abandoned, he's lost track, or he's not able. Not according to the scriptures. Scriptures tell us we may assume his presence. We may rest in that hope that anchors our soul. All right? We're going to look to the next primary biblical character right after Joseph, Next comes Moses. We're going to find him in the book of Exodus. And in it, I'm going to encourage you this morning to embrace uniqueness. Last week, we assumed his presence. This week, we're going to embrace uniqueness. Now, that's always, not always easy to do because we tend to want to compare ourselves to others. So let me get a little transparent with you. I am a recovering uh, comp- competition addict. Anything in which you could keep score, I was all in, and I would be doing my best to beat you as soundly as possible, all right? That didn't matter what it was, I wanted to win. And the Holy Spirit, you know, has generally, gradually begun to work me out of some of that, but still on occasion it shows up. I, I think I've told you that I do a little running, all right? My daughters got me started, and they quit, and I just kept running, um, and recently I was at an event. Notice I didn't call it a race. I'm too old to race, but, um, but it was an event and I paid a little money to be there. That keeps me busy. All right. Preparing for that event. And you get there and, and I always like to be early. If I'm not a half an hour early, I'm late. And in these events, if I'm not an hour early, I'm late because there's stuff that has to be done. You got to get checked in, you got to get into the porta potty lines, you know, you've been hydrating, you need to do some of that stuff, and, and all this goes on, and, and then you, you get all ready to go, and you've still got plenty of time, and inevitably what happens, it just crops up in me again. I start checking out the field. Now, the nice thing about these events is I don't have to compete against these youngsters, now, they're all there, but, but I'm not competing against them, and I know it. I mean, I've got sneakers older than these guys that are going to be at the front of the pack, and they're just going to blaze a trail, and, and, and the only thing is left of them is when I come through is a little dust, unless it's muddy, all right? But what I do find myself doing is start to check out my fellow graybeards. <laughs> we're, we're pretty easy to spot. There's not as many of us, all right? 
but we're pretty easy to spot. And I start looking around saying, okay, who do I have to be mindful of here today? It's that old competitive thing starts. And, and, and recently I was up around Indianapolis at Eagle Creek. I told you about that, I think, a little bit. And I start looking around and I see a guy over here and I'm thinking, uh-oh, that dude's a runner. I can tell by looking at him. Got some gray hair, but it's long. He's not even bothering with a shirt, and he's got short shorts. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'll never keep up with old long hair short shorts. Not a chance. That dude is going to be way faster than me. I just know it. And I look a little further, and over here is a guy, also another gray beard, and he's got a man bun. The best runner that I personally know, who soon may very well be a professional, I told you a little about him, Riley Mack, he's got a man bun. So if Riley's got a man bun and this guy's got a man bun, he's got to be faster than me. He's going to smoke me. I won't even see this guy. And before the gun had even fired, I had decided that I just didn't measure up. You ever done that? Now, it didn't amount to a hill of beans at the end of that race where I was as opposed to those guys. But in the kingdom, it matters that I lean into that special place that God has prepared for me and me alone and that I experience it to the full that I bring everything to his kingdom that he wants to bring through me, that I embrace my uniqueness and I make myself fully available for him to make it real and tangible. But when I fall prey to comparison, that becomes difficult and sometimes even unlikely that I'll be ready. Last week we looked at Joseph when we saw that special contribution that God used him to bring. Story picks up the very next book in Exodus. And what we find is that all of Joseph's family has moved to Egypt. God preserved them because they're going to be the line through which the Messiah is to come. God miraculously preserve them and blesses them so much so that chapter 1 of Exodus verse 7 says, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now that's a pretty awesome deal unless you happen to be the Pharaoh of all the Egyptians. And he starts looking at these Israelites, these Hebrews, and he is threatened instead of encouraged. Because see what had happened, there was a new king, verse 8, that arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, it doesn't mean that he wasn't aware of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was still a big deal in, in Egypt at this point, but he didn't have relationship with Joseph. And so he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them. Or else they will multiply in the event of war. They will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they decided to make their life real miserable and they enslaved them. And they gave them so much difficult work to do that they thought there's no way this people are going to try to rebel. We're just going to keep them wore out all the time. But it didn't work. They just kept prospering. They just kept multiplying more and more. So the Pharaoh decided he'd take another step, a more drastic step. And they got the midwives. 
those special ladies who would show up to help give birth of the, of the Hebrew children. And he told them, now, from this point on, the Hebrew baby girls can live, but the Hebrew baby boys, you're going to kill them. He just didn't count on the fact that they feared God more than him, and they refused to comply. And so the Israelites, the Hebrews, just continued to prosper. And so finally, a last-ditch effort to keep this multiplication uh, from continuing, he just declared a moratorium. Every Hebrew boy that's born is cast into the Nile. He declared a genocide. We're going to do away with this generation. And that's when chapter 2 opens. And there was an unnamed lady, Hebrew, who had an unnamed husband, and they had a little baby, a boy. And the scripture tells us there was something special about that little guy. Now, I've never been a mother, won't be, but I never met a mother who didn't think their little baby was pretty special. But this mama had such a sense that there was something going on with this little guy. Scripture says he, he was beautiful. Very likely the, the presence of God's spirit just emanating to her that you've got to do something to keep this little guy alive. And so she hid him for months. And when it finally became obvious that she couldn't continue to hide him, she prepared a special little basket and took him down by the Nile in the reeds and posted an older daughter to keep an eye on him hoping they could continue to guard that little guy. Next scene we see, the daughter of the Pharaoh shows up. And here's that little guy and sends somebody over. And she recognizes immediately, oh, this is a child of the Hebrews. And about that time, the older sister, who was Miriam, pops up and says, oh, do you need me to get somebody to help you take care of him? And the daughter of the Pharaoh says, well, absolutely. And so she takes that little guy right home, and he gets to continue to grow up in mother's care until finally he's going to be weaned. And then he is delivered to the daughter of the Pharaoh to be raised in the Pharaoh's house. Something special about this little guy. And he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life being groomed for special assignment of God's work. 40 years. Now, we don't get that out of Exodus, but a little Bible study principle for you. If you'll look around beyond just the immediate context, you'll get some other little gems uh, just kind of nestled in there by the Holy Spirit as he inspired the word. Uh, you can learn a little something about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. You can also learn a little something in Acts chapter 7. That's where when Stephen is, is making his final uh, 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 message before he's martyred, Stephen tells us that 40 years Moses grows up in the house of the Pharaoh. And he gets all the ends. He gets schooled and educated in all the ways of Egypt. Now, keep in mind, e Egypt was a world power, and they had, they had education stuff going on, you know, all those pyramids and all that stuff was happening in that time frame back then and, 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 and around that time. And they, were, they were a happening place, and Moses was on the inside track. And it says, the scripture tells us, in spite of Moses' objection in chapter 3, that Moses in this first 40 years became a man mighty in word and deed. He was something. 
But somewhere along the way, Moses began to recognize an identification outside of his upbringing. He began to identify with the people of his birth, the Hebrews. He began to recognize that those are my people. That's where I come from. Scripture doesn't tell us how that realization came. All we know is, let me see, um, chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, 40 years have passed. That first primary season of his life is complete. When he had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. Something stirring in Moses' heart. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now again, it's Stephen who gives us some insight into some of the ongoings. Moses saw what was going on. He saw how his people were suffering at the hand of the Egyptians. And he decided, preemptively, mind you, and it's too early, but he decided somebody's got to do something to stop this oppression. And he intervened himself. It's way too early. It's not time yet. As a result, he murdered a man, thinking that he was going to initiate the deliverance. Read Acts 7. Oh, he's going to initiate the the deliverance, but it's just too early. (laughs) It's not time yet. What's happened is he's gotten the first 40 years of preparation of all the mind and heart and ways of the Egyptians, but the next season is yet to come. Pharaoh catches wind of the fact that he's murdered an Egyptian, and literally Moses runs for his life because the Pharaoh is going to kill him. And he runs for his life, and he ends up out there in the desert of Midian. And he intervenes and and delivers a a young gal at the hand of some people who are abusing her, and as a result gets favor of one of the the local tribe's leaders, you know, the the clansmen. And he invites him into his family, gives a daughter as a wife. And there Moses would be in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Forty years in all the grandeur and glory of Egypt. Now 40 years in the wilderness. And I've wondered. I've wondered. Was there any time out there in the middle of nowhere in the arid, hot, barren wilderness when Moses was reflecting on his life and maybe begin to compare himself with Joseph. Joseph started out as a lowly shepherd and ascended all through some difficult times, mind you, but ascended to the glory of Egypt. And I can't help but wonder if Moses didn't sit there and shake his head and and wonder, God, I was already there. What am I doing here? Why did you take me from all of that where I could have influenced and been a, been a, been a, a blessing for my people, your people, God? And now, here I am, in the middle of nowhere, chasing the sheep and the goats. Oh, how easy it is for us to slip into that mode of comparison as opposed to really leaning into and being settled in the uniqueness that God has for us. 
You ever look around and say, man, now that, that person's really got it made. They really got it going on over there. Me? Nah. I don't, I'm not, I don't have much. I don't have much to offer. This person? Man, they're really rocking the kingdom. It is incredible. Me? Nah. Feels like I'm out here in the wilderness. God's not working anything in me. And I've wondered if Moses didn't struggle with that in those 40 years that he was out there in the wilderness. According to Stephen, book of Acts, chapter 7, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. And then God says, Moses, it's time for a sacred moment. And it starts in chapter 3. Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. A sacred moment is happening, and it just appears to be like any other day. You never know when the intersection of the routine is going to intersect with the divine. You just never know. He was just doing what he'd done for the last 39 years, 364 days. Only it's a providential moment, a sacred moment is on the cusp. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. This is not normal. Something unusual is happening here. Well, yeah, whenever the angel of the Lord, who in all likelihood is the pre-incarnate experience, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, it's not just going to be another normal day. This time he shows up in a burning bush. Now, this next part, I want to make sure you catch. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Moses stopped and said, wait a minute. This is not ordinary. I've got to know more. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the bush. I don't know exactly how far to push this, but I wonder how many opportunities there are for God to communicate into our world in the midst of the encounters that are all around us and he waits for us to stop long enough to investigate further, to slow down long enough to listen, to quiet our hearts and our minds, to say, God, what are you up to in this? This doesn't seem like the normal routine situation. Have you got something special for me here today, God? It was when the Lord saw that Moses was not just going to go on about his way of pasturing the sheep. He was going to turn aside. He was going to check this out. And then the Lord spoke. And the sacred moment occurred. And all of a sudden, from the vantage point of 40 years of experience, some things begin to make sense. You're going to send me where? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know all about Egypt. 
I know all about it back there. I know the heart and the soul, the mind and the act. I know Egypt, God. I spent there 40 years. And you want me to bring your people out into this place? Yep, I know this place too. I've spent 40 years out here. I recognize the uniqueness that you have designed for me. Now, it should come as some consolation to us that that in spite of that special preparation, it was still an intimidating thing for Moses, right? He tried to negotiate his way out of that. Six different encounters back and forth between him and God. But it was a sacred moment that God suddenly cleared up everything he had been preparing Moses for. Now go back and get my people. Embrace uniqueness. Assuming that God is at work to accomplish his special purposes through you. Drop that right into the midst of enduring or persevering through trials. And all of a sudden you're going to say, you know what? I know God has special place for me in his kingdom. Is this particular bit of this season difficult? Is it stretching me? Is it getting wearisome and heavy to carry? It absolutely is. But I know he's got a spot. I know he's preparing me to bring that uniqueness to his kingdom. Your way, your contribution is going to be unique to you like nobody else can play it. I can't do your part. You can't do mine. It takes us all for the kingdom to be fully fit and equipped to accomplish what God has for us. We need to embrace the uniqueness. But oh, how we struggle to do it. Let me make a couple of observations about this this uniqueness that God has for us. First of all, I want to say to you that generally speaking, it's discerned and not determined. It's discerned, not determined, meaning it's, it's often something that we recognize as opposed to something that we just decide. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You see, the plans that I had for my life when I was 19 years old, I was going to be third generation hog farmer over in Hutton Township, Nowhere, USA. All right? That's what I was going to do. That's what my dad had done. That's what his dad had done. My kids would have been fourth generation in that little area, stomping around over there on that dirt, making a living. And I just assumed that's what I would do. It's what I'd always done. It's the only thing I'd ever known. And I enjoyed that. It was good. But about 20 years old, the Lord made it clear, uh, no, I've got some other plans for you. I had it all laid out. But the Lord had other plans, discerned, not determined. And that discerning is often aided by the vantage point of time passing. For instance, back in his days in Egypt, Moses would have been oblivious. And when he did begin to get a sense that God wanted to use him to deliver his people, he got it all messed up. He tried to accomplish it himself before God was ready. Oh, but when those 40 years 
had passed and the next 40 years had passed and finally God got him convinced, now's the time, I have everything in place. You see, looking back over, get this, two-thirds of his life. That's not the same as Joseph got. It was different than Joseph got, but it was unique to Moses. Two-thirds of his life, he's only going to get 120 years. If, if you're a neat and order, orderly, tidy person, you'd like Moses' life. He got 40 years in Egypt. He got 40 years in the wilderness. He got 40 years of ministry, and then he got to go home. <laughs> but that was unique. That was his place. Looking back, he was able to recognize the move of God in his life, getting him ready for that unique contribution that he was to make. There are, some, there are some real advantages to getting older, you know, besides AARP, et cetera, you know, discount on your coffee and stuff. There are some benefits. Now, it's tough sometimes too, but, but you know what? You, you've got enough experience of walking with the Lord that you recognize some things. You begin to see his hand. You begin to see how he's been at work all along. Oh, and it makes it much easier to continue to follow him to trust him, to put your hope in him because he's proven himself trustworthy over and over again through the years. Our unique contribution to the kingdom of Jesus Christ in this world today is often discerned, not determined. Let me give you some helpful questions that might, that might give you a boost at, at discerning what your unique contribution might be. First one, I heard these on Catalyst, a presentation on Catalyst. Forgot the guy's name, but they're helpful. What do you like to do? Can you imagine in the kingdom that the Lord would give us the freedom to do what we like to do? He's wired us up. He's designed us especially and uniquely. Uniquely, as we tend our intimacy with him, those likes are going to come to the surface and he's going to use them. Now, hear me. As we tend our intimacy with him, that special wiring is going to come to the surface and we're going to enjoy what it is that he has for us. What do you like to do? I heard Erwin McManus say one time, and I'll get you the exact quote, best I can remember it. It was, when you're, when you're chasing the, the appropriate dream, you're going to like the process as much as the product. Meaning, you're not just living to get it done. You're not just living for, man, I can't wait till this is over. You're going to be into the whole journey along the way. You're going to love the process of, of working with God, joining him in the kingdom. You'll get lost in that. You enjoy it so much. The passage of time will be almost oblivious to you because you're just into it. You don't get, uh, you don't get the life squeezed out of you. You get refreshed once you've found that unique contribution that he's got for you, once you've discerned how he's designed you, McManus said you, you, you'll love the process and not just the product. As you embrace your uniqueness, what do you like to do? It's an incredible thing to think. To, we just don't often give ourselves... We don't, you know, usually when you start getting close to Jesus and somebody says, well, you got to be careful, he'll make you be a missionary in Africa or something. Listen, if he wants you to be a missionary in Africa and you're tending your intimacy with him, you're going to live to be a missionary in Africa. If that's not where he wants you, that's the last place you want to be. He's going to give you a want to for the things that he's got designed for you as you tend your relationship with him. 
What do you want to do? Secondly, what do others see in you? This is the part that we play for each other in community. What do others see in you? There were people when I was 19 and 20 years old that knew before I knew that I wouldn't, wouldn't be spending my life on the farm with my dad. And, and they would occasionally carefully share that with me. It was a little intimidating to me, but as time went along, it was affirming. That's why it's important when we see God at work in each other's lives that we'll share those kind of things. Hey, man, I see how God's using you. Are you aware of how God is doing that in you? You know, we don't do that very often for each other, but if we will, it will help us discern that uniqueness that God has for us. What do you like to do? What do others see in you? And third, what frustrates you? What causes you to bang the table and say, somebody's got to do something about this? And it drives you crazy that everybody else doesn't see it and feel it as strongly as you do. Somebody's got to do something about this. Guess what? You're probably getting into the realm of your uniqueness and what God wants to accomplish through you. Relax with the fact that everybody else doesn't feel it like you do. They can't help it. That's not what God gave them. It takes us all. What, what is it that frustrates you? What breaks your heart? What causes you to weep? Remember when Nehemiah got word that Jerusalem was in shambles after the Babylonians had wiped the place out? And he got an update from that, and he sat down and he mourned and he wept for days. Well, yeah, because God was going to use Nehemiah to go back and build the city. It was his uniqueness. It breaks his heart. He can't, he can't imagine that going undone, that need. That was his uniqueness. Your unique contribution, your uniqueness is going to be discerned and not determined, and those questions can help. Another big picture principle of, of this uniqueness concept is that comparison betrays uniqueness. Um, when we start looking around at other people and comparing what God is doing in us or where God has us in our faith journey, what season of life we're in, we start looking around at others, that's, that's not going to go well. It's probably going to take us in one of two directions. It's either going to take us to pride where we're going to get all swelled up and say, whoa, man, that dude's doing nothing and look at me. You know, what I'm bringing to the kingdom is something really special. You, not so much. That's how broken our flesh is. We can be real about that. You know, we think our part is the best part. It's our brokenness as opposed to celebrating the uniqueness among us all. We can become arrogant if we compare. The other thing it can be is discouragement. We can look around at somebody else and say, well, I, I couldn't do that. And if I can't do that, I'm just going to do nothing. Apparently, I don't have anything to bring to the kingdom. If that, man, if that's, a, well, forget that. It can make us disillusioned by ourselves and threatened by others. Do you hear how that attacks the community that should be our strength, our connectedness that should be our best testimony to a world? when we are discouraged about who we are and we are threatened by others. 
That comes from comparison. We started with long hair, short shorts, and, and man bun, remember? And we were in the chute. The race hadn't even started, and I decided, man, those guys are not in my league. I'm definitely coming in behind them. And then we started. The gun went off. And we'd gone up and down and around the corner, and it was first couple of miles were more difficult than I expected. And then we came out, and we were going to run this long, gradual incline out on a highway. And much to my surprise, as I looked ahead, who did I see but my old buddy Man Bun? I could see him again the second time. I thought old Man Bun would be almost done by now. Man Bun wasn't done. And it appeared to me from a distance that Man Bun was struggling a little bit. And it, 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 some of you runners know, you know, you get this, I, I believe I can reel him in. <laughs> and I started closing the gap. And I got up there and I got right alongside old Man Bun. And that old boy was huffing and puffing like a locomotive. He was way in trouble because we had a long way to go yet. And all of a sudden, I realized just how silly a comparison back there had been. Now, long hair, short shorts, I never saw him again. He was just, you know, one little time when our, the trails kind of went like that, you know, he was way ahead. He was that good. Man bun? No, he wasn't that good. The reality of it was the comparison had just messed with my head. I do the same thing in the kingdom. If I look around and want to compare myself to this pastor or that pastor or this national ministry or this global work that's going on, I can start to either shrink in comparison or get a little puffy in comparison. And Father says, no, son. I've prepared this unique contribution for you. And as long as you will lean into me, together, we'll pull it off. We'll make it happen. And I'll bring every bit of glory out of you that I designed you for. Embrace uniqueness. Don't listen to the lie that you don't have a special part to play. I'm telling you, the scripture tells you tells us you do. Unique, special part. We'll close with this. John 21. Jesus has already, Jesus has already gone to the cross, suffered, died, was buried, rose again. He's been hanging out with the guys for, for a, a little while by now. And before he ascends again, he's got one more special thing, or at least one more special encounter that needs to happen. You see, a guy that he was going to count on a great deal as the church launched was one uh, Peter. And Peter's got some unfinished business with Jesus. Because when push came to shove, Peter denied he even knew Jesus. Remember? Three times. He said, I don't know that guy, I don't know that guy, I don't know that guy. And then Jesus rose again, and Peter realized, whoa. And so Jesus, Jesus put together a special encounter to get Peter back in right standing with him, to put that to rest. And so Jesus orchestrated an opportunity for Peter to be able to affirm Jesus of his love one, two, three times, paralleling each of those three denials. 
Peter's feeling pretty good about himself, but it appears to me that he, right after that, slips into this old, hey, what about this guy business? A little dab of comparison goes on. Peter turning around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? Probably John the apostle. We believe he was the youngest of the group, that he was one that Jesus apparently looked after a little extra. If anybody wanted to get some go-to information from Jesus, John was the one. And so that's what he's referring to. At that, that night when Jesus had said, somebody's going to betray me, they said, hey, John, I, you ask, you ask. Peter saw him and he said to the Lord, Lord, what about this guy? Jesus had just told Peter three times, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, right? He had his unique place there at least in general sense. And he looks around and says, oh, John, he's the insider. I wonder what Jesus has for him. What about this man, Jesus? (laughs) And Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, until I come back, if I want young John to still be going at it, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about him. What I got going on with him is between him and me. Peter, all you have to do, you just keep your eyes on me and let's go. And I'll reiterate those words to you today. Don't worry so much about what God's doing in somebody else's life around you. You focus on following Jesus. Step at a time, day by day, and oh, the glory his kingdom will gain. The glory that will come to him through you will be more than you can imagine. In all honesty, you won't even realize it until you get home and have that perspective of looking back. Don't worry about what God's doing in him. You Follow me. Embrace uniqueness. Let's pray. Father, many times I've reminded myself of the words of Paul to the Philippians when he said, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, I. I'm absolutely dependent upon that truth, that reality, and long for you to do your work in me. Lord, how easily I can allow my gaze to go elsewhere. Father, thank you for the reminder from Joseph to Moses. They weren't the same. You didn't intend them to be. Their journeys looked different, and yet they were absolutely vital to the work that you were carrying out. The same is true for every single person in this place here this morning. You have a special contribution that they and only they can bring to your kingdom and will do so as they stay focused on following Jesus, trusting him every day, being aware of his kingdom that is all around them all the time and the opportunities that we have to join him in the work that he's doing today. Thanks, Father. Encourage my brothers and sisters today. 
Encourage them to find that place, to discern that place that you have for them. And then you and they together, make it so, Lord. Make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.